performance pressure and shaming people about low performance can really just do the trick, can get people to uh, push aside their norms and values and, uh, and engage in unethical behavior just to get out of being shamed. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Wakian. In the fourth season of the American version of the television show The Office, regional manager Michael Scott is to be deposed as part of a wrongful termination lawsuit filed by the corporate supervisor Jan Levinson. Michael brags that he has memorized Jan's answers to the opposing counsel's questions. She hedges to the camera saying, the truth is very, you know, complicated. So we went over it carefully, just not to leave anything up to chance or Michael's judgment. Today we're joined by Nikki Dan Neuenburer from the University of Kansas's School of Business. She'll discuss with us what her research says about middle managers who corrupt upper management's business directives by intentionally misrepresenting them to their employees. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Nikki Den Nieuwenboer. Hello, I'm Nikki Den Nieuwenboer. I'm uh, originally Dutch. My last name, uh, it translates to the new farmer. And so I guess my family wasn't the old bunch, but the new bunch in town. I lived in the Netherlands most of my life. So I did my uh, sort of my undergrad and stuff uh, in Leiden University in the Netherlands. Uh, then I lived in Belgium for a little bit. I moved back to the Netherlands. I did my PhD in Rotterdam School of Management, Erasmus University. When I moved back to the Netherlands, I already knew that I didn't want to stay in the Netherlands. At the time, I thought I wanted to uh, to move to Portugal. So this is where I met uh, Joao, the second author, who uh, was the person who collected the data. But by the time uh, that I actually got my PhD, um, I guess I'd fallen out of love with Portugal. So I decided to move to, uh, well, I applied for a bunch of jobs. Uh, and uh, and I got my first job in, uh, in California at Santa Clara University, uh, which is in Silicon Valley. And... Uh, um, and then I decided not to stay there. You know, at least in our field, it's basically you go where the job is. And so um, Kansas had a job. And when I got here, Lawrence, the, the town that the KU is in, is just a, a really neat town. And I like the people here. The Midwest is very friendly. So I decided to move here. Um, and, uh, and I've been at KU since 2014. Nikki's study set out to understand work routines, specifically those involving middle managers' translation of upper management's directives to line employees' performance expectations. Ryan and I wondered how such misrepresentations, which she calls corruptive routine translation, come about. The focus uh, was uh, on middle managers and what they did to get employees to behave unethically. And so how we explained what they were doing, uh, that took a long time to figure out, in part uh, because I had to sort of uh, get acquainted with an entirely different literature. Finally, the story clicked. The literature that we were able to use to explain what these guys were doing is uh, referred to as the routines dynamics literature, and it uh, understands routines to be a pattern of work 
work. And so it doesn't so much have to do with like uh, mindless repetition as much as understanding that a routine is just a, uh, a pattern of work that you repeat, if you will. So finally, I've, I figured out that what these managers were doing uh, was creating new work routines for their subordinates. So for the desk salespeople, they were supposed to be salespeople, but the selling wasn't, wasn't going well. And so they redefined uh, how these guys did their jobs. And, and that is the concept of uh, corruptive routine translation. Upper management in the abstract already sets, has some expectations about how work gets done. So uh, upper management typically prescribes an, on a very high level, you know, uh, roughly what you're supposed to be doing. Namely, they're supposed to be selling stuff to corporate customers. And then that, that routine uh, gets uh, refined uh, and translated as you move down uh, the hierarchy. Uh, so everybody gives a different interpretation of the routine and adapts it to their strengths and their weaknesses and their local customs and cultures and, and all of that type of stuff. And so this translation process, you know, uh, middle managers just hijacked it uh, and said, you know, let's just uh, pretend we're selling, but we're not really selling or still telling upper management that we're selling. But here you go, you be a service manager, uh, you, you do that instead. Or, you know, there's, there's rules, uh, part of this performance uh, management routine, there's rules about uh, what you should report as a, as a call that you made. And they had goals for how many calls they were supposed to make uh, every day. But now we're going to say, you know, you can also log emails as calls or internal calls to other departments um, within our organization that you do on behalf of a client, like in trying to solve a problem for that client, uh, log that as an external sales call. Um, and so they basically just, um, just, just took what upper management at a high level sort of imposed upon them and then twisted it uh, so that it enabled them to report uh, excellent performance while they were in fact not performing uh, much at all. Nikki's study uses data previously collected by Joao Cunha, a Portuguese-born researcher now working in France. His earlier research involved a sales staff within a large telecommunications firm. Doug and I were interested in hearing how they developed the idea to examine evidence of deception presented in Joao's dataset. As far as I understand, he has always wanted to do an ethnography as a, as a method. He, uh, he is really drawn to this participant observation uh, type of methods. And so he obviously also has an interest in how, how do people use technology in, in their work. He was looking for an organization to do an ethnography in, and they uh, they found this uh, this larger organization, which is a telecom organization um, that had just adopted this new technology, which uh, helped uh, people track sales. So it was both sort of like a sales tool that you could use to have all your client information and all that kind of stuff as a performance management tool. And so they managed to uh, to persuade that organization to allow him to do this um, this study there. And then he spent 15 months uh, there watching people work. And so he uh, got there uh, not anticipating anything unethical to to happen or to, uh, you know, it wasn't part of his original research objectives or study. Um, but then when he got there, he just found that people were, you know, being made to uh, lie about their performance. So then he thought, oh, that's interesting. So then he basically just started you know, observing that too and, and making notes and asking people in, in interviews that he was doing. So that that's sort of how it, it um, 
how he ended up there. So it was not not premeditated uh, to be uh, an ethics study. And so he is still very much a sociology of IT person. But um, but yeah, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't stupid. He thought this is probably interesting and that might lead to a publication. So let's let's pay attention uh, to what people are doing. So as soon as I started talking with Joao uh, about these data, I, 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 I intuited that the most interesting or one of the very interesting aspects of the story was how the heck do man- middle managers get people to behave unethically? Because it turned out that a lot of these people were like, yeah, we don't think it's cool. This is not how I want to do my job. You know, this is like um, people are miserable about having to engage in, in unethical behavior. We asked Nikki about the setting in which Joao's data were collected, including how the organization was structured and what the responsibilities of its various departments were. Obviously, any names and, and things like that of units and organizations that I'm using are made-up names, pseudonyms, because we uh, we cannot disclose uh, the true identity of, uh, of this uh, organization. But the overall organization, which is a telecom organization, uh, we call it Teleorg. Uh, Teleorg, as, uh, as such, has about 10,000, uh, or at the time at least, had about 10,000 employees. Uh, we focus on one uh, unit, which is all the way to the bottom of the organization. We call that unit desk sales. Desk sales uh, was a business-to-business uh, sales channel. They were trying to sell uh, telecommunications um, equipment, for instance, you know, headsets and telephones and uh, even uh, ADSL lines at the time to other uh, larger companies. So there was a business sales channel so that focused on, on smaller companies, but desk sales was set up to focus mostly on, on companies the size of like your average Fortune 500 company. So uh, they were selling to these really large clients. And so it had a, a sister department also called field sales that sold to the same clients. And the difference between desk sales and field sales was that desk sales was to, supposed to sell, you know, the less complex things um, and uh, cheaper products, if you will. And they were doing that over the phone, hence the desk in desk sales, whereas field sales was uh, was was dealing with the same clients. And so desk salespeople and field salespeople often were on account teams together because they were serving the same clients. So that's one thing. Uh, then uh, the primary focus in our paper is on the interaction between uh, middle managers and desk salespeople. And the middle managers were their uh, low-level uh, managers and the general manager of, of the desk sales units is also a middle manager. And we kind of generalize, uh, talk about upper managers as anybody that's higher than that. Upper management is essentially where the um, where the performance expectations were coming from. You know, they, they did the goal setting. They were interested in making sure that uh, the desk sales performed well because it has been set up to uh, cut the cost of their uh, sales channel. So desk sales was a new unit. And, uh, and because they were selling over the phone, they were much cheaper than field sales people. So they could reduce the amount of field salespeople, replace them with desk salespeople and have a, a cheaper way to sell stuff to companies. So I guess that's the, those are the, the main actors or groups uh, within our organization. We also have some sort of um, departments that play a role like the service department and the, um, the IT department because some of the unethical behavior involved them in a way um, as sort of a bystanders, if you will, but the, the, the big group is uh, is salespeople. Uh, they were the ones that were uh, being forced to cheat, and they were being forced to cheat by their middle managers, and the middle managers did so because it turned out that desk salespeople were not really good at 
selling. And it was a very um, challenging scenario for these middle managers to get the unit to be a, a success. Nikki defines corruptive routine translation as a process in which middle managers identify structural vulnerabilities in the organization, which they exploit to create and enforce a lower level routine that both enables and sustains deceptive performance among their subordinates. We wanted to learn how this routinization of deception comes about in the first place. So yeah, it starts with upper management um, setting, uh, you know, performance expectations or determining sort of like um, high level or an abstract version of a performance routine amongst others. uh, They do so by just, you know, having a desk sales unit and a field sales unit and saying, you know, they both of them should focus on the same clients by saying that uh, desk sales should uh, sell from the desk. So they determine already a lot of the how work gets done in in lower levels, right? and which so it's not just you know the actual performance targets but it's also simply having a desk sales unit and saying that you sell from the desk and sell by phone i mean and so yeah that's sort of upper management um role but also what they said you know you have to use this it system and you have to report on on all those kinds of things that they do to determine what type of behavior essentially should happen uh, on lower levels of the organization because that's what upper management likes to do right they they don't just say go and work, but they they want to have some kind of influence and control over lower levels of the organization. Um, So they do so by prescribing how performance gets done. And then the middle level, you know, receives that, but they're sort of caught in the middle because then they have to translate that to actual performance in their lower level employees. And uh, and that's where uh, problems started arising because um, with all the prescriptions that upper management had made. And so it was really hard for the lowest level of the organization to actually uh, carry out and, and those prescriptions and, and reach the targets. In part, it was because the targets themselves were high. And so that um, was a cocktail that was toxic enough for the middle managers to decide, you know, it's not going to work uh, in an ethical way. And so we're going to make it work in an unethical way. We were interested in hearing examples of the sorts of deceptive behaviors that desk sales employees engaged in, as well as the extent to which others were complicit in their deceptions. You know, it's a silly example, but desk sales had to make seven calls a day, but they only had like very few contacts. So ultimately, if you have seven calls a day, five days a week, with the contacts that they had, they had to call the same people several times a week. And, uh, and you know, that's that's. That's, who does that? Plus, they had to make those seven calls even if they were sick or in training or on vacation, uh, which is somewhat silly. And so the targets themselves were high, but there were also other things that made performance difficult uh, that, that were, you know, sort of the quote-unquote fault of upper management, including that the IT system was just hard to work with, didn't go very fast. They also had to log a lot of information in that system about the clients and stuff like that. And we call it owner's administrative uh, requirements. And then anytime that a, a customer was looking to place an order to uh, replace some things before desk sales, they were supposed to do that with service. But service wasn't incentivized to, uh, you know, they didn't have any sales goals because that didn't make sense. So yeah, the middle managers had figured that out and figured out that sometimes these uh, service people would then also not uh, claim uh, those orders in the system. So uh, desk sales managers actually developed like little IT protocols to search for orders that 
that they could claim as their own. And Surface was just not paying attention to uh, to orders disappearing uh, because you know they were that that was not their job, and they still had complaints to deal with, so they had other things to do. And then also what middle managers also notice that's where sort of the squeeze came is that uh, desk salespeople were just not very good at selling. And so they redefined uh, what certain rules were, you know, you don't have to actually make a call to log a call in your system. They said also, um, if you log an order as a sale, make sure that, uh, that, that you log it first as a sort of a tentative sale, a possible sale in the future have some time lapse and then only sort of close the sale after a few days because sales don't get made within, you know, within an hour. You, you, you know, it's a process. You call the client you say, hey, are you interested? And then oh, I'll call back tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. And so they thought if you if you record orders as sales like in one go without this, this, this sort of time lapse that you allowed, then that will look suspicious. And so they made sure that how the data were recorded in the uh, in the system uh, that that looked like actual honest sales. Surprisingly, though they benefited from the deception, more than a few employees in desk sales resisted middle managers' plans to game the system at Teleorg. Middle managers, however, saw this merely as another constraint to overcome, as Nikki explains next. A lot of the desk salespeople were like, you know, we don't want to lie. We don't want to act dishonestly. We think this is, uh, you know, this is fraud. We don't, we don't agree with this. And so, in in order to overcome this resistance from the desk salespeople against uh, cooperating with this deceit, uh, they were mainly focused on uh, on shaming people about low performance. So, you know, there was a, you were letting down the team. They had like uh, public rankings on uh, on whiteboards uh, that they would shame, you know, the lowest person with the, the fewest uh, calls made and stuff like that uh, and they would just highlight underperformance uh, to a degree uh, that people felt embarrassed and uncomfortable about not performing well and uh, and so that is what ultimately sort of um, motivated a lot of the desk salespeople to cooperate it was not so much because they were you know they could gain bonuses it was mostly because they didn't want to lose their job and they didn't want to be shamed about not performing well so it was kind of like a golden cage if you will you know a lot of people think that uh, you can incentivize people, you can pay people to engage in unethical behavior. And certainly we know that that sometimes happens, uh, but I think we overestimate the degree to which people can be bribed into unethical behavior. And uh, a good chunk of these guys, they did not want to cooperate. And if you look at the, the stories that come out of Wells Fargo, it seems like performance pressure and shaming people about low performance can really just do the trick, can get people to um, push aside their norms and values and uh, and engage in unethical behavior just to get out of being shamed it's you know in, in a way it's kind of funny or, or we have this quote that that our uh, pr guy from ku really liked that if uh, if, uh, if you're approached by upper management in an office party you know pretend you're drunk and wander off it's just kind of funny but at the same time you know if i'm at a party and i don't want to have to worry about pretending to be drunk because i might get into a conversation with a higher level person and i don't want to lie you know, it's kind of like, yeah, let's just say, <laughs> we do not wish this upon people, let's just say. <laughs> After the recent revelations that Wells Fargo routinely opened phony customer accounts and sold insurance to customers who didn't have to have it, the bank is again back in the news. Now it's because of the Federal Reserve's decision to cap the bank's growth until the Fed is satisfied that it's cleaned up its act. 
We wondered what Nikki thinks that behavior such as Wells Fargo's says about people's willingness to engage in unethical behavior. So I also teach ethics, right? Um, and so I, I think it's really easy, and you saw that also in Wells Fargo, it's super easy to blame the bad apple uh, because that means that as an organization, uh, you just get rid of the bad apple. You don't have to worry about, you know, your culture. And so Wells Fargo got rid of like 5,300 bad apples. Uh, and and so th that many people were fired for, for engaging in, in bad conduct. And, you know, as I was joking with my students, uh, they really suck at recruiting uh, to hire that many bad apples. So I think it's it's really um, convenient to think that for organizations to think it's just bad apples, because then they don't have to change anything about their own model or their own you know culture, which is always very difficult. It's also convenient personally, because we think of ourselves as good people. Um, and of course, I wouldn't do something like that. And of course, I would be much stronger and, and resist, you know, this kind of dynamic within uh, within our context. And, you know, I'm not a sociopath. I'm, I'm not a bad person. Uh, but it turns out that it's really easy to get people to uh, to behave unethically. I mean, just look at the Milgram studies, right? In the 60s, people were asked to participate in uh, an experiment and they ended like 65% um, of them ended up shocking other folks up to 450 volts in some versions of the experiment. And obviously people were unhappy with inflicting pain upon others. But also, obviously, it was not entirely difficult to get them to do so. Along with Joao Kuna, Nikki co-authored her paper with Linda Trevino, a distinguished professor of organizational behavior and ethics at Penn State's College of Business. Nikki talked with us about the influence that Linda's 30 years of experience with business science scholarship brought to this study. Both Linda and I, we come from uh, an organizational behavior background, and so I had no familiarity with the, with the literature that we ended up uh, using. So I had to sort of discover this, this literature and also there's some aspects of the paper that when you look at it sort of purely from an OB standpoint, they didn't fit into a, into a nice and, and, and neat story about why this was unethical, what, what these guys were doing. And so we, I received a lot of pushback on especially the um, the, the role-related uh, corruptive routine translation, the whole be a service manager instead of a salesperson, because a lot of people initially said, so, uh, so they are contributing to the organization and so it's not unethical. But I was like, no, the whole reason why they're being told to be service managers is because it helps them find opportunities to create deceit. So I knew that it was a legitimate part of the story, but I wasn't able to find the, the vocabulary to justify it. And so at some point, Linda uh, suggested I should look at structural symbolic interactionalism because she had worked on that with her advisor like in the 1980s. Just a quick interruption to explain that the basic notion of structural symbolic interactionism is that society shapes us and we shape social interactions. For example, how people entering a new group without prior information about one another organize to deal with a task that brings them together. Also, in just a moment, Nikki will refer to the extensive and performative aspects of routines. The prior concerns a routine in principle, while the latter refers to how a routine is actually carried out in practice. 
we had noticed that there was a pattern that they were prescribing things to these these uh, these desk salespeople. So from uh, structuralist symbolic interactionalism, I I happened upon uh, Latour, and I really gravitated towards this idea of ostensive and performative, which he uh, talked about in in this 1986 paper. And then I found the uh, uh, routine dynamics literature, and that's when it all uh, started clicking. And I will say, which is maybe nice to mention. Uh, that it has influenced very much my um, my view and understanding of my work and the topic that I research more broadly uh, in that I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much sort of like a social structure kind of uh, behavioral ethics person, which is fairly unusual because our, our field has been uh, very, very micro experiment based in the past decade or so. And so I'm a little bit of an outlier. I like to look at uh, social structure and human behavior um, and how the two combine to, uh, to produce unethical behavior. Brian and I were also curious to know what advice Nikki would have for upper management to curtail unethical behavior among middle managers and line employees. Obviously, we don't know for sure, but I think that if managers had been able to accomplish um, performance in an ethical way, I think that probably they would have tried to do it ethically. But there were these uh, these specific uh, constraints that, that just made that um, hard for them. In this case, uh, the constraints were the uh, the amount of administration that people needed to do to log into the system. Uh, also, the system itself, because it was very slow uh, to work with, and so it was very frustrating for desk salespeople to have to log all this type of information. And similar to Wells Fargo, the desk sales unit was actually allowed to operate fairly autonomously, so there was not a lot of monitoring that happened in person. The monitoring that happened was mostly based on uh, on performance reports and uh, and so it's easier to lie in a performance reports than to have to lie in a face-to-face situation, right? And so I think that was part of what gave the opportunity for, for unethical behavior was the monitoring practices by uh, by upper management. That I think is a is a is an important takeaway for practitioners. Go and visit, look at how people are actually doing their jobs and maybe go there unannounced because these visits that did happen by upper management were thoroughly rehearsed. Um, at desk sales so that everybody had the quote-unquote right answers and had their stories straight. So so that is, an, uh, that is an important aspect of the study. Something that we also try to share with people is, uh, is for upper managers is to be sensitive to the actual practical impossibilities or possibilities of performance. Because uh, I think it was because it was just hard to actually produce performance and because there was a heavy emphasis on performing well that also, you know, upper management was just super obsessed with numbers and making sure that everybody was doing well. It just created the environment that, uh, that, that managers thought they had no other option but to make people behave unethically. Lastly, Doug and I asked Nikki what she sees as the big takeaways from her study, both to the field of business management as well as to those who provide leadership within large organizations. I think there's a bunch of things that that we overemphasize or underemphasize that clearly comes to the front. So one thing that in this study and in other more qualitative stuff that exists on on unethical behavior that i think is important to start acknowledging is that we have this idea that you know people become morally blind and blah 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 and so it's sort of like an oops kind of version of unethical behavior gosh i didn't know that i was doing something bad but no these these guys were clearly aware that this was deception and and they were unhappy about it um and still they participated in it so i think that 
that's an important point. Uh, also, we talk about the normalization of unethical behavior, um, but when we when we do so, I think a lot of people understand or think of normalization as normal, and so I don't understand it to be unethical. Um, but I think those are two different things. I think it can be normal because this is how we do things here, right? So it is normal, but at the same time, it's not like I'm not aware that this is also unethical. No, they, they, they you know, it, it is widespread. It is the normal way that we do things, but I do know that it is unethical. And I think another thing that um, that is important and it's not so much in our data because we don't have data on on higher level managers, but it might be that some of the of the higher level managers are aware that there's bad stuff going on, but choose to uh, remain silent. And we also typically, when we talk about upper management, sort of assume that everybody, you know, sort of this is upper management, and upper management thinks this. Um, but there might be different uh, folks in upper management that that think, you know hey, this is totally unethical, but makes me look wonderful, so I'm going to happily ignore this. Um, and and there might be others that think, no, if I know uh, uh, that this is happening, that I would be very upset with it. So it's not one whole. I think we should just look at and understand upper management in a much more complicated way than we do by just sort of lumping them together as, as one entity, because they're not. That was Nikki Den Nuenbur discussing her article, Middle Managers and Corruptive Routine Translation, the Social Production of Deceptive Performance, published on October 3, 2017 in the journal Organization Science. You'll find a link to the paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials that she discussed during the show. In a few weeks, the acclaimed researcher behind the Stanford Prison Experiment, Philip Zimbardo, will be joining us on Parsing Science. He'll talk with us about his striking new research into the dynamics that underlie people's decision to defy unjust authority figures. You can find the paper that we'll be discussing on parsingscience.org under the Coming Soon menu item. If you have any questions that you'd like for us to explore during our interview, leave us a message on our toll-free hotline at 1-844-XPLORIT, and we might feature your call in the episode. That's 1-844-975-6748. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Sam Mayer and Manvir Singh from Harvard University. They'll talk with us about their research into whether a universal link exists between the form and function in human song. It's a weird finding. It feels fundamental in this way that these two domains of music that you find everywhere that are very identifiable are completely the opposite in their features. It, it, it feels important for the evolution and design of music. We hope that you will join us again. 